All right. I am here with Kenneth Bartholomew Marion, rising star of the sports media and broadcasting world. He's the son of rage and love, the Jesus of suburbia. What's up, buddy? Hey, Danny. Thanks for having <laughs> me on, man. I'm, uh, I'm excited for this, dude. I'm excited. We, I think that we picked two albums that are completely different. Uh, so I'm excited to kind of navigate between, uh, between those differences and, and talk about two artists that I personally love. Two very different artists and albums, uh, both connect with us in, in a lot of different ways. Petty, obviously, is is one of our favorites, our shared favorites. Uh, American Idiot, you really brought to my attention, frankly. Uh, it kind of like skipped over me when it came out. I thought I was too cool when it came out, you know? Uh, but uh, you kind of put it back on my radar, I think, 2018, 2019 range. Uh, and, I, and I gave it like a dedicated listen then. And then I've, I pulled a couple tracks and I've been listening to them for a while. And it was really fun to go through and like really dive into it and, and look at it that way. So let's get right into uh, the album you chose, which is American Idiot by Green Day. American Idiot is the seventh album of 13 albums by Green Day. The album was produced by Rob Cavallo and was released September 21st, 2004. The uh, tender freshman semester of our undergrad. Uh, so I'll start the first question here. Uh, how does this album make you feel, Kenny? So it's funny you mentioned the September 21st, uh, 2004. For whatever reason, I'll always remember that date. My mom's birthday is September 22nd. Uh, nice. So of course, acquiring the album upon its initial release was uh, was definitely necessary for me. I got it right away, started listening to it right away. Um, the way it makes me feel, um, kind of a lot of different ways, uh, which you'll probably hear some smattering of that over the next four <laughs> hours of my dissection of the album. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, man, it's funny you mentioned the the freshman year in college. I, I couldn't help but when I was kind of like re-listening to it and thinking about how I wanted to put into words how I feel about it, some of that stuff was there. Um, you know, it was early in my college career. I'm from a small town and so going to college in general and moving away from home was already kind of a lot for me, but I was excited. I was excited exactly. to get out of the the kind of small town rural feel that, that Lapeer had and, and kind of like make my own mark in the world. And so I think I'd been in college, you know, long enough. I'd been there for about a month that, that I knew at least then that I wanted to be different and I wanted to present kind of a new me to people. And for some reason, this album really resonated with me and helped me do that. So I, I do have a lot of feelings about it. Um, you know, a lot of them are things that when I re-listened to it today in preparation for this, I, I didn't realize how many things stuck with me over the years. And now it's been 17, 18 years, you know, um, since that came out, which my God ages me terribly, but so much, I, I couldn't believe how many things I took from it and how many things I was able to kind of look back with a, a different eye and, and see how I feel now versus how I felt in 2004 when, when I first heard it. Um, but I would say that, that some of the biggest feelings that I have are probably nostalgia in some way, yeah. but also, but also just relatability for me personally. Anyway, I know that not everyone will feel that way, but for me, relatability of, uh, you know, in some way, obviously the album has some themes and things in it that, uh, that not a lot of people can relate to, or they choose not to relate to, but, uh, 
what I did. And, uh, and I found that to be a, to have a really profound impact on my, on my life then. And, and even now. So I think we landed in a really similar place on this one. And I, I want to, uh, throw it back to you real quick. And just to ask, those were, those were moments that you just remember very closely, the dorm life and like the anxiety and the awkwardness and all that stuff. Are there other albums uh, if not in the same kind of vein, uh, sonically or whatever, but are there other albums that you carry with you that kind of had that same emotional tie? I do actually. And you know, it's funny. My wife was just talking to me the other day about an artist that she was like, Oh my God, I, I don't even know who that artist is. And that artist is, uh, oddly enough jet. Um, Oh baby. I know, man, there, for whatever reason, man, their album shine on, it didn't have any hits on it didn't have you know the the cold hard bitch or the you know are we gonna are you gonna be my girl anything like that but for whatever reason man it came out i was at a very like distinct point in my life with a group of friends and we listened to it all the time <laughs> yeah. and i look back on it and i'm like man that was like a very like period album for me and so now i have it on vinyl and like when i listen to it, it it's nice. like transports me it's like it feels like it tra- I, I feel like harry potter dipping his face in a pen sieve and i'm just immediately transported to all the vivid detail and and everything um that uh, that came with that album and and how i felt when i first heard it that's that's amazing uh like i said i think we landed in the same place i have i have some of those albums too uh there's a saves the day album that zach our our friend uh who was my dorm roommate uh uh listened to quite a bit uh, this was this was the era of of emo and pop punk for me, um, the 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 peak maybe the crest of that uh, era, and so the matches, uh, some alkaline trio stuff like that. Um, uh, yeah, there, there's just a very specific, very personal feel to a lot of that. So the the word I landed on um, is heard in a way with this album because for the most part I am looking at this album retroactively when it when it came out. I was uh, I was too into bands like uh, I don't know Punchline, Yellow Card, Cartel, Saves the Day, Lawrence Arms, Boys Night Out, some of those other ones I just mentioned, uh, and to like Green Day just like wasn't cool. It was not that cool to like pick up the Green Day record and and like be blasting it. Uh, you know, it was much cooler to uh, have you know be playing some of the smaller bands and unheralded bands. So. Um, uh, I I feel culturally heard with this record because I think a lot of music speaks to kind of culturally and politically marginalized youth, youth but there's a specificity to American Idiot uh, and those born, this window's off, but like 76 to 90, something like that. Um, a lot of the music speaks to broken homes, but American Idiot articulates the strife and boredom and anxiety of what feels like my generation's brand of strip mall depression. Uh, so looking through this and, and hearing some of the specific lyrics about broken homes and about uh, stepdads and about uh, learning, you know, how to be a person in a 7-Eleven parking lot, it's like it, it really was speaking to a version of myself I haven't connected with in some time. So uh, looking back on it, looking back uh, – in the way that I did, I, I felt heard by this album, like they were speaking to a version of myself while I was neglecting it. At that time, was neglecting the album, uh, which is pretty ironic. So, uh, 
from that, I think we can move to the second question. Uh, what's the most interesting instrument on this album to you? So Green Day plays a lot of like power chord music, right? It's like guitar, bass, drum, right? And and they play it very, I don't even know, like kind of masterfully in a way, right? They're, they're a three piece and they play it that way. Um, in terms of interesting, um, there there is a track, um, there is a track on there called, uh, let's see here, Extraordinary Girl, uh, in which the first 30 seconds are the drummer, Trey Cool, and he's playing on a pair of hand drums called a tabla or tabla. No nice. idea how to pronounce that, but it's kind of like a bongo-ish type thing. Um, and it's actually, um, it's to the Middle Eastern culture, I guess, because the song was initially supposed to help represent some of the war in Iraq stuff. And, uh, and it originally had a, you know, a Baghdad type title to it um, that uh, that kind of plays into that. It's kind of funny because the first time I heard it, I was like, oh man, that's really cool. And then when I was listening like over and over again, and I was like, you know, doing a workout and I have my headphones in or something like that, I would always skip those 30 seconds. Cause I was like, man, this is a pretty weird and not like, you know, it doesn't really get me in the mood, but it's a really cool, it, it speaks to some of the themes of the album, but also I definitely an instrument that I, I mean, I had to look up what it was and I still to, you know, still even now don't know how to pronounce it. So I would say that that falls under the uh, most interesting instrument on the album. What about you? I love it. I, I definitely thought that was an interesting choice. Uh, it, it stands out on the record. There's like, it, it really like jumps out when you're listening through and you're like, did my Spotify jump to another album? Uh, so it's interesting that it it was worked into the Middle Eastern Iraq War uh, part of that. I, I definitely didn't know that. Uh, so I uh, I kind of cheated as I as I tend to do with some of these questions and went uh, more of a symbolic route. And what I said was that I thought that ambition was the most interesting instrument on this album. And uh, taking like a step back and kind of looking at where Green Day was at this moment, uh, they'd released the Greatest Hits album in 2001 and an unpopular studio album in 2002. Uh, so the master tapes of an album to be released in 2003 were stolen and uh, there was kind of growing dissent in the band, uh, which led to an agreement to totally start from scratch on a new project. Um, so they started by creating their own 30-second songs, which uh, eventually yielded the title track, American Idiot, and then the bits that formed Jesus of Suburbia. Uh, they started coalescing around a concept album and used the Who's Quadrophenia, Tommy, uh, Bowie, Ziggy Stardust, and classic musicals like West Side Story, Jesus Christ Superstar, Rocky Horror Picture Show as influences. Uh, Billy Joe told Rob Cavallo that he wanted Green Day to have a Beatles-like arc, which is nothing if not ambitious. Uh, Billy Joe spent a few months in Manhattan writing and playing with Ryan Adams and Jesse Mallon. Um, he started writing the story about someone uh, going away and getting the hell out while working out their demons, uh, which is obviously uh, an undercurrent, if not a uh, main theme and uh, stream of this album. So they recorded the record's tracks in the order uh, that appear on the album, and they tell this relatable uh, and deliberate, unspecific story, which is an interesting part of it because 
I coming into it, I knew it was a like a rock opera and it was telling a story and I really wanted to kind of dig into exactly the the beats of like what was happening with the different characters. And there's definitely a story to be told here, but it is it is somewhat vague. Uh, and like, I think it allows you to fill in some of the gaps, uh, but also allows just about anyone to fill in aspects of their own life into, you know, uh, going out, trying to do something, maybe coming back, but having learned quite a bit in the process, you know? So I think, uh, in a succinct way, uh, if you put in a blender, a rock act that is more than a little lost, three guys with overflowing anxiety about the state of their country's politics and media manipulation, a band desperate to be relevant for the right reasons, artists that didn't want international super hits to be the bookend of their uh, great work, and then scoop in ambition and you get American Idiot, a wildly successful commercial album, uh, reinvigorated the band creatively and would eventually become a Broadway musical that won Tony Awards. Uh, those are big dreams for a band that had just put out a greatest hits album. So it, uh, one of my criticisms I feel like of pop punk generally is, is that there's not a ton of ambition or, uh, a lot of desire to make different sounds. It's kind of a formulaic genre for the most part. I don't know if that's pejorative or not, but I, you know, I, I think that's that's mostly where it comes from. But this was a fucking really ambitious record. They, they could have kept playing the hits. They could have, you know, gone off into, you know, rode their way to the Rock Hall of Fame, but they really, really wanted to make something great. And I think they did. So, um, yeah, quite a bit there. Uh, so just to far, touch on... Just to touch on that ambition thing, it, it's interesting you say that. I so you mentioned how like the original tracks were lost, right? For for this album that was supposed to come out in two thousand four, and then I guess when they came back into the studio, they were worried about getting the tracks back, et cetera, et cetera. And then the producer looked at Billy Joe and asked him, you know, are these tracks the best music you've ever made? And I guess he couldn't, with a realistic look at himself and and the band say yes so they decided to scrap it and then that's where this was born out of it so it's it's funny you mentioned the ambition thing i mean just being able to realistically look at themselves and say well we were probably just repeating the formula that's gotten us here similar to the punk rock thing um and certainly to the pop punk scene that does happen quite often um it's also funny that you mentioned all the commercial success and just kind of tying this back into what you said earlier about how you skipped it because it wasn't cool to listen to green day. Yeah. One of the things that it's, it's one of the things that it's a strange juxtaposition for, for punk rock in general. It's like these bands make music that they want other people to hear. But then once they reach like a threshold of how many people hear it, it's almost like they've sold out, right? Like once they, once they start getting to like arena rock levels and things like that. It's almost like they've sold out and they're no longer cool to listen to. And it, like for me, I like I never was able to like I never really cared about that. Um, I thought it was cool that people were listening to Green Day on the radio and it was on normal radio, like pop radio, not, you know, 89X or, you know, whatever it was that we were listening to in the Michigan area that like rock radio It was on like pop radio. and. For me, I that's what I like. I mean, I I kind of I kind of like a little bit refer like I guess I compared a little bit to the way that for me being like a Harry Potter and a Lord of the Rings and a Game of Thrones fan from the books and then seeing it become like popularized and everything like that. Certainly, you have some downsides to that, right? Like sometimes maybe you wonder if the band is 
you know, in charge of all their decisions and, and some of the creative stuff, like maybe they wouldn't say certain things. Um, with this album, I'm not really worried about that because they said a lot of things that were definitely hot takes and definitely risk taking things, um, especially, you know, speaking out against America in a post 9-11 world. I mean, that that takes a lot of a lot of guts. Um, and frankly, I think it kind of helps adhere them to the punk rock mantra, right? Of speaking your mind and staying true to yourself. Um, and that's one of the reasons I like the album so much is because it got a lot of commercial su success while also still being true to themselves and still saying what they wanted to say. And frankly, not giving a fuck about who cared and, and what, you know, if they were going to go down, they were going to go down saying what they wanted to say. And, uh, and then the opposite happened. They, you know, everybody loved it or, you know, it was, it was generally liked um, all the way around. And it's kind of funny, but just to tie in one of the songs, probably the most popular song on the album, Boulevard of Broken Dreams, is actually one of my, I wouldn't say least favorite, but I will say that I skipped it a lot just because of how much it was on the radio. Absolutely. And then somehow I turned into like this Green Day hipster, which was like, so you <laughs> you probably weren't a hipster about punk rock music, but you didn't listen to Green Day because they were popular. So then I took that even one more micro step and I didn't like people who only liked Boulevard of Broken Dreams because I was like, what the, like, you got to listen to the whole album. Like, what do you, you just like this one that's on the radio? Like, you don't know anything about this album or or the origins of it or anything. And uh, just, oh man, College Kenny was just the worst. So yeah. it's nice, it was it was nice to kind of like look back on that and my thoughts on the song and be like, yeah, all right. Well, I guess maybe I like the album a, a bit too much to, to feel that way about it. But anyway, I just wanted to kind of wrap those up uh, in, in that as well. That's perfect. It's it's a genre that that really uh, bleeds for authenticity. And the juxtaposition is that when a band starts getting bigger in that genre, they pull away from like some of the reasons that why people want to go to shows and see them at the shelter in St. Andrews and Detroit, this the small venues of, you know, downtown places all over the country and world. Uh, and then, yeah, you're right. It, it hits that sweet spot of uh, both creative and commercial success where they're they're taking some really big shots here and making them, uh, which is is just a hard thing to do. So, yeah, I, I was the worst, too. Again, like the irony that um, a band from a genre I really liked made this like really, really cool, ambitious album. And I was like. Nah, bro. I can't be. I can't be. I can't be rocking American Idiot on the the dorm floor. Okay. I need to be playing some music that no one else has ever heard. Uh, that's that's how you get cool. So uh, that was definitely what was going on for me. So moving into uh, what was your what's your favorite song on the album? So my favorite song on the album is uh, it's a little bit of a cheat because it's like six songs, but it's Jesus of Suburbia. Um, it was released later as a single, um, which I thought was pretty cool. I, I mean, frankly, listening to it right off the bat, it was my favorite from, from the get. Um, so it's cool that uh, a whole new subset of people got to hear it later on, even though if they didn't, you know, fully understand the context of the album, which I guess I'll get over even now my, uh, my hipster, uh, hipster, uh, mentality <laughs> about it, but yeah, man, I, Jesus of Suburbia to me, it, right away, it comes on. I'm already in a mood. Um, it's kind of funny because I, I saw this interview with Billy Joe where he talks about it and he's like, I think it's weird if people say they love this song because it talks about like so many kind of like depressing things or whatever, like things that don't really like 
you know, really instill a lot of happiness or joy or even like getting you pumped up um, or anything like that, uh, which is usually how I live my life. I like to try to remain an optimist. But for some reason, the combination of of the way the notes are played and the way the lyrics are sung, a lot of the lyrics really resonate with me as well. Um, I'll mention a few here. Uh, so there's, there's one in the beginning that says home is where your heart is, but what a shame. Cause everyone's heart doesn't beat the same. Yeah. And I, I love that one. It's, it, it's just great to me. Like I, like I mentioned earlier in the pod about how coming to college and, and kind of like figuring out who I was as a person was, was important around that time. And so feeling that way and hearing that song at that time, it really resonated with me because I was like, man, I was like my whole life, a lot of people, you know, a lot of people around me, a lot of kids I went to high school with, adults or whatever, I was kind of like stuck in this like mindset that everyone else had and I felt like I needed to be in too. So then all of a sudden when I left home and then was able to think the way I wanted to think and be who I wanted to be, it was like, man, it's, it's awesome that, you know, to, to think that I didn't have to be like everyone else and I could be whoever I wanted to be. That was very appealing, um, especially like under the construct that like not everyone may agree or they may have preconceived notions or like judgments, um, which is kind of sad, I guess, in and of itself, but but not something that would like rule me as a person. So, I, I mean, that's a little bit deep, but I don't know that that's the way that uh, that I took the lyric uh, and I, I really appreciated and enjoyed that. Uh, unequivocally, without any deliberation jesus suburbia is my also my favorite song uh when you uh pointed this album my direction a few years ago it stood out uh so much and since then and before this really detailed look at the album uh i whenever that would come up on a playlist it would just like made my day uh, i would say that uh without exaggeration it's one of my and being conservative, like one of my hundred favorite songs ever, like just that much power. And we talk about uh, hitting that sweet spot of commercial and creative success. If that's true, then this song is truly the core, like the heart of this album, because it's the it's the core idea of the character leaving home, uh, you know, the reasons maybe that they re leave home. But then also it is just such a great song to listen to. Um, Billy wrote it uh, as a stab at the contemporary Bohemian Rhapsody, uh, he said in an interview, which I think he succeeded, frankly, <laughs> like it's it's that good. Um, he stated uh, it's his favorite Green Day track in a 2019 radio interview. And then in 2020, he told Vulture uh, it's the greatest song the band has ever recorded. So I think it all just kind of lines up with what we're saying there. Uh, as I was going through it and listening to the album, uh, and just kind of taking free notes uh, the first couple times I listened to it, I jotted down lyrics throughout from the different songs, uh, and I ended up with 14 different notes, 14 different lyrics. And without even knowing it, I jotted down seven of those 14 were from Jesus of Suburbia. So, uh, yeah, it's a five-part song, um, and they they break it up. Like, it depends on where you look. Uh, sometimes it's listed as, like, actual different songs, but... No, you've got five different parts, and it, and it truly is a rock epic, uh, full stop. Uh, it doesn't matter what genre you want to break it down to. It is, to me, one of the great rock songs ever. Um, so it, it, it really, for me to really love an album, and I don't know if you're the same way, but you have to have one of these 
on there. Yeah, like one that you just like can always go back to and then everything else kind of coalesces around it. And this helped me get into the album. And then it uh, from there, I started enjoying some of the other songs. So uh, I remember, <laughs> I think when I first started listening to it, I, I mentioned that to you. I was like, man, I really like that song of Jesus Suburbia. And your text back was something like, that song, like that song, dot, 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 or something. So I, I feel like it's been affecting you the same way for a long time, like it's been affecting me. Yeah, man, absolutely. That song, and frankly, <clears throat> we can thank that song too, or I can anyway, because that song and really the creation of the character, Jesus of Suburbia, like those lines, I'm the son of Rachel Love, the Jesus of Suburbia, it, those were the lines that made like, They'd already written Homecoming. They'd already written a, you know, a different song. And they liked the idea of all those kind of little mini songs, right? Going into one. And then he said that one line, Billy Joe, I guess, came up with this one line. And then he was like, oh man, this changes everything. Now, yeah. now this is where we want to make the concept album. And, and that's, you know, ultimately born all these different characters that, that come into the album and then ultimately allow this to become a musical and all these different things. So it's kind of like the origin of really the entire album um, was that song, even though it really wasn't written first. And that's, I think why it adds, right. I mean, the song itself is a banger, no doubt, but it adds that kind of level of like the whole album doesn't happen without this song. Right. Um, and concept albums usually are like that, right? They have like one song that kind of ties them together to some degree. And, and this one certainly does because when you listen to them, you know, um, numerically, you know, just from top to bottom, American Idiot could probably be described as a single, just a, you know, if, if you don't take any character stuff from it can be described as a single. And the same thing with Holiday and Boulevard of Broken Dreams, they can kind of like individually live on their own and breathe on their own, which they did because they were singles. And, and obviously people, you know, um, could relate to them on their own. But then when you add in Jesus of Suburbia, and then they all kind of come together because of that, it's just really cool to, it's really cool. I don't know, man, I, I can't get enough of it, to be honest with you. That's that's a great way to put it. I, I wanted to give some air to some of the words in the song, uh, which you did a little bit. But uh, for each part, all five parts, I have what I found to be like my favorite kind of line or quote from it. So and for some of them, I have multiple. Actually, most of them I have multiple. But uh, so in part in part one, Jesus of Suburbia, get my television fix, sitting on my crucifix, the living room or my private womb while the moms and brads are away. I had to listen to it twice. I was like, I'm pretty sure he said Brad's and like that <laughs> Brad's as, as like the like placeholder for stepdad is like so perfect. <laughs> uh, I thought that was beautiful. Uh, and then there's nothing wrong with me. I'm the way I'm supposed to be in the land of make believe that don't believe in me. That's just, that's just beautiful. I think that speaks to uh, the, my answer to the first question about being heard. And I, I certainly, those lyrics really resonate with me. Part two, city of the damned. The motto was just a lie, it said. Uh, home is where the heart is, but what a shame because everyone's heart don't beat the same. It's beating out of time. So uh, a line that you've already read there um, and just couldn't be more true. Uh, part three, I don't care. Uh, I don't care if you don't care. Simple, succinct, like says everything about uh, people's frustrations about, you know, politically, uh, in a broader context about America, but um, it's just a, it's a, it's anthemic. You know what I mean? Um, we're the kids of war and peace from Anaheim to the Middle East. Perfect. You know, a, a band and a, a creative guy who isn't necessarily known for his lyrics 
they they here and there like like really come together. But I really feel like there's some poetry on this album. Uh, so part four, dearly beloved, oh therapy, can you please fill the void? Am I retarded or am I just overjoyed? Um, a little more blunt, but like still right to the point and really honest. Are we demented or am I just disturbed? The space that's in between insane and insecure. Very perfect. Uh, and then part five, tales from another broken home. Running away from pain when you've been victimized, tales from another broken home. So just speaking to so many uh, different youths in Western culture, if not just the United States, uh, but allowing some connection uh, for all that. So a beautiful, beautiful song. Genuinely one of my favorite songs of all time. Uh, had, had, you know, no, no deliberation over what was my favorite there. So uh, moving into the, yeah, what, what? So, yeah, it's, it's funny. I, just hearing you say all those lines is fun because I they all resonate with me as I've listened to the song as well. One of the other ones that I that I jotted down was in a land of make believe that don't believe in me. I, I really like that one as well. Just thinking about in general, like looking at our country and how America is supposed to be the land of dreams, but only if you dream like we want you to. You yeah. know? <laughs> um, and obviously that's a that's a pretty cynical view. But at the heart of it, it is based in truth. You know, it's it's hard for people to understand others that are different than you, be it the color of their skin or who they love or even the socioeconomic situation they're raised in. Luckily, I think the more that we get away from some of the older generations, it's getting better now, or at least I choose to believe that it's getting better now. But it's interesting that even in 2004, 2003, whenever he wrote this, that that he was saying the same things, right? That, that yeah it's okay to step outside the constructs of what we were raised in saying, this is normal. This is right. This is what you should be doing. All of those things. It's just so empowering to, you know, a young teen, maybe like me who, you know, heard it at that point, but maybe people who listen to it now, even it's, um, it's kind of sad that people still have to feel that way some 20 years later. But um, I think it's just something that uh, ultimately it's, it's just, I don't know. I, I find I I agree with your with your assertion that, that Billy Joe is a, a good lyric, you know, lyricist. I a lot of what he says, it's like the way that he says it, you know, the moms and brads like the you know, it's like you get it. And it's also kind of funny, but also kind of, you know, furthers the point along. I, I don't know. I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. And, and how cool to have a line that I'm sure meant something to you when you were smashing bush lights in your dorm room but then also <laughs> but the, <laughs> but then also later on when you're becoming an adult and you're having thoughts about politics and you're seeing the world for what it is it's like jesus that it still hits me hard uh so uh that, that's always cool as things uh progress and age well uh like that so uh what is an interesting insight about this album's production or story so I know you touched earlier on the fact that, you know, the original tapes were lost. And so this one was kind of re-recorded. I did enjoy that they, that they said that they, um, so they basically, I think they said, and they took this from the Beatles that they, they recorded tracks from the beginning to the ends with the drum. And then they went backwards with bass and guitar. So they started with American wow. idiot on the drums and went all the way through what's her name. And then started on what's her name with the guitar and uh, bass to go, you know, backwards, back down to American Idiots. And apparently, 
that it was something the Beatles had done. And so they were inspired somewhat by that. Right. Um, and so I thought that was kind of cool. I thought I, I, I'm not entirely sure the strategy there or why, why that matters. Um, but I just thought it was kind of cool. I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't know that either. And I hadn't heard that about the Beatles, which is, which is pretty cool. Uh, what the first thing I think of though, is anyone that's, that's creative and is trying to, uh, surface something that's new tries new things even if it doesn't have like a specific uh thread to it it's like let's try this even if it doesn't go right we'll work off of what comes from it you know um or in in the context of um trying to keep things new or fresh I, i'm not sure if that's how they they recorded things before but it's like let's do this it, it will be a new challenge it's like you know when an nba player is in their 14th season it's like this season I'm going to make 86% of my free throws, you know, and, and just to like kind of continue to progress, uh, forward. So that's beautiful. Uh, my main, uh, insight, uh, surrounds, uh, both the documentary, but then the actual fact that this became a Broadway show. So I watched the documentary Broadway idiot and really, really enjoyed it. Um, Broadway idiot was a, uh, well, it, it was actually just called uh, American Idiot, of course, but it was a sung through rock musical, um, uh, was created and had a one year 422 performance run on Broadway from April 2010 to April 2011. Uh, Michael Mayer, the winner of the Tony Award for Best Director in 2007 for a musical called Spring Awakening. He approached the band uh, about a theatrical adaptation of American Idiot. Uh, the band was reluctant to sign off. Um, did you actually, did you watch this doc? I did not, no. No, But okay. I did go see the, I did go see the Broadway play. I just saw it in Detroit. Fuck off. That's amazing. Yeah, absolutely, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, give me your thoughts on that. Uh, broadly speaking. Yeah, yeah. So broadly speaking, I mean, it was fun, man. I, I went with my brother and my and my friend who they both definitely appreciate, you know, the, the totality of the album. Um, it was cool for me, too, because it wasn't just American Idiot. It kind of like bleeds into 21st Century Breakdown, their next album, yes. which is uh, somewhat a continuation of this uh, in terms of some of the characters. Um, but seeing them kind of weave their way through. It was also cool because and I know you mentioned earlier how there isn't really like a firm story but there's enough of a story, right? That, that, that there's obviously can have a musical based on it. And, and there are characters and, and it was just, it was fun to, to see the play and to think about the way that I had originally thought, you know, the characters were, you know, in my head, right. When I was listening to it and the characters are always something that I, I don't know, man, I, I truly appreciate it. I, I don't know, this is kind of a weird thing to bring up, but when I was yes. a freshman, obviously, the, because this was my favorite album, I was very, very into it. And my college sweetmate, John Casaza at the time, told me that he had gone to this place at Great Lakes Crossing, a mall, and had a, uh, a personalized hat made, right? And it was for a friend of ours, Dutch, and it said, sorry, Dutch, and I just thought it was cool. So then I was like, man, if I were to make a hat, what would I put on it? And the hat... <laughs> you know, had options as to where the stitching could be. And so ultimately I came out of it with a black hat with red stitching that said Jesus of suburbia on the back. And it had St. Jimmy on the side. Yes. And it had an American idiot written on the bill. And um, I, I, I was only allowed three 
Um, so I couldn't put what's her name on there, you know, kind of the other character, but man, I, I, just the way the characters are, I guess. Um, and, and seeing them, you know, portrayed in a play form was cool because it was like, I know that a lot of people took the, the, the opera part of it, right. The rock opera. And they, they heard the characters and they, you know, they, they felt them, but seeing it portrayed the way that I felt them as well. Um, and knowing that that's how Billy Joe and the writers of the songs wanted you to feel and knowing that I felt that way, it was somewhat validating in a way to see it kind of portrayed that way. It was like, man, all right, this is cool. But then also the way that, the way that sometimes maybe I didn't disagree, but I was also like, oh man, I didn't really, you know, take this from it or, or whatever. Um, kind of like the, the initial thought of the, the track being like, love versus uh rage and and i know that obviously that's the track you know jesus of suburbia but the how those themes go throughout the whole album and then ultimately what's her name and love kind of winning out i didn't really see it that way when i listened to them initially um and then kind of seeing it be that way with the play was was cool i don't know i guess uh i i really enjoyed the play i i should go back and watch the documentary because i i definitely enjoyed it I love it. I was so hoping that St. Jimmy uh, was going to be on the hat. Uh, <laughs> that's cool. So, I mean, I'll, I'll take another sidebar here and just to just to kind of lay out what you see as the story in broad terms, because I, I feel like I have somewhat of a grasp of it. You have this character, Jesus of Suburbia, uh, who kind of goes out on his own, uh, frustrated with the way things are, goes to the city, meets character like St. Jimmy, who is mostly a bad influence, uh, gets him somewhat addicted to drugs. It seems like there's some element of that. He meets this girl who is only we only know as what's her name, uh, and then he eventually makes his way back home. Is that is that broadly kind of how you see the story? Is there anything else uh, that is important to you and like your kind of understanding of the story? Um, I, I would say that one main addition I would make to that is the. Um, like the, he points out in the song um, in Homecoming, I think, or, or yeah, I think it's Homecoming um, or maybe even Extraordinary Girls, oh, it's Letter Bomb. Anyway, that, um, that Jesus of Suburbia, like that St. Jimmy was just a figment of his imagination, right? It was like this oh. person that he wanted to give energy to, right? And it was, it was it. Like, it's, kind of, it's kind of like the, you know, whatever, the angel and devil on your shoulder, right? And he kind of invested in the wrong one, if that makes any sense, and and has been following this along. And then St. Jimmy ultimately commits suicide, right? Which in a way for Jesus of Suburbia, it's kind of like a purging of those negative thoughts, right? And Demons, that only yeah. happens. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it only happens because of, of what's her name, right? Kind of showing him that there's another way to live and that there's, you know, more to live for, I suppose, in a way. Um, ultimately it's a little bit sad, right? Because at the end he doesn't really remember what's her name, right? He just, yeah. just remember, remembers that she exists. But to me, I don't know, man, I, I, I find that kind of uh, cathartic in a way because I like the way that like the way that I think is, is to kind of remember things in a good way. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a very specific memory, but, you know, handling um, loss or handling harder times and being able to still extract the positive energy and the positive things that you may have learned and grown from um, has always been a part of kind of my ethos, I suppose. So I enjoyed 
what's her name for that. I don't know if that was the 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 point at all, um, but that's what I got from it. So frankly, I, I but that's that's what that. we're talking about here is that there's room for interpretation. There's room for you to insert yeah. the way uh, both that you want to see how it happens, but then also uh, the parts of your life that you can relate to. Uh, that's beautiful. So uh, St. Jimmy, not an actual tangible character. I don't I don't think I gathered that along. I thought he was actually somebody that he ran into. I do remember uh, when he does commit suicide and I was like, that that seems a little strange, but that makes a little more sense now. So, uh, well, I mean, I guess everybody thinks that Brad Pitt was a real character in Fight Club too. So you can still be real and be in <laughs> yeah. your head, right? So there you go. Well put, well put. All right, picking back up, uh, basically this this uh, major director uh, on Broadway wants to make this a play. Uh, the band was reluctant to sign off uh, but mayor and musical director Tom Kitt adapted Last Night on Earth and played it for Green Day, uh, who were blown away. This is probably the best part of the documentary. Uh, they bring Green Day in. Uh, they're seated, they're seated there. Uh, they they sit there in front of them and they play it with uh, broad orchestral and vocal accompaniment. And you can just see all their faces. I think Billy Joe cries a little bit. Like it, it, it really, I, I feel like it was the moment where it turned and like they really wanted to get on board. So the cast, Green Day, and the directing team collaborated closely as the show came together and eventually debuted in Berkeley. Um, John Gallagher Jr. Uh, plays the lead. And I don't know if he played the lead when he was touring when you saw him, but this is the actor, uh, notably from no uh, Newsroom, Love Life, Modern Love, um, mostly Newsroom. For people that have seen Newsroom, he plays a major character there. But it was it was funny to see him in that role and to see him singing the songs and stuff. Uh, but yeah, the show sources mostly from American Idiot, but also from 20th Century Breakdown, like we talked about. Uh, and then eventually Michael Mayer suggested Billy Joe come in and play St. Jimmy uh, for a stretch of the Broadway run, uh, which Billy Joe did, and they actually had to sneak him into rehearsals as to not tip off the press to you know the fact that he was actually doing that, which I thought was so cool. And what, what an amazing roundabout uh, creatively for Billy Joe to create all these ideas. I mean, the album, as he said many times, is like based on both his personal experience, but then these characters he created. So it's it's like basically like this imagination of of Billy Joe's, and, and I'm sure the other two uh, create uh, creatively collaborated some too. But but you know, Billy Joe being the, the main driver of it. But for him to <laughs> eventually be able to play this this character on Broadway that he kind of created in his own mind that's like a, a an alternate version of himself uh, and, and a rambunctious and kind of loud uh, one at that. It's like, it's just a really beautiful thing for me to see. Um, the other best part of the documentary was Billy Joe actually talking about this uh, whole process happening. And I have a, a rather long quote, but I think it has a good payoff here. So, um, in the old days, uh, this is Billy Joe uh, in a voiceover from the doc. He says, in the old days, coming from an underground scene, there were a lot of bands uh, you would watch that were your friends and things like that. Everyone would sort of feed off of each other and have fun and at the same time learning. Uh, once Green Day took off, we started losing that. We started losing friends, which is fine. You only need a few. It became difficult to find kindred spirits in that way. Uh, and then to take a break from the quote, I mean, that's that's a, a story that we've seen many times with bands uh, starting off somewhere, you know, you become less authentic to that scene and to those people and whatever. And then you get bigger and it's harder to uh, kind of uh, grasp where you're at as you're moving. Um, picking back up with the quote, 
And when the cast came along, I started to feel that again. And I've always wanted that. Uh, I've been almost naive about uh, where I wanted to make those connections and relationships. And it didn't happen in rock and roll music. It happened in theater. Uh, that's what blindsided me. So the fact that it, it really wasn't a novelty that this album uh, went on to become a Broadway show. It, it, it was truly a its own creative invention, and it really meant a lot uh, to the artists as well. So uh, I, I really liked how that all kind of synced up, and um, it was really cool. I mean, Billy Joe, in these documentaries that we watched, I watched that one, and then we both watched uh, Bullet in the Bible as well. Rock stars are rock stars, and like it's, it's a lonely life. It's a lonely environment. Uh, there's so few people that like truly understand you. And um, to hear him be so vulnerable and so honest about something that he really cared about was was pretty cool, pretty special for me, for sure. Absolutely. I, I think that part of this, and I don't certainly don't mean to, to discredit uh, Trey Cool or Mike Durnt, you know, the other members of the band, but Billy Joe, just put so much of himself into this album. Um, I mean, he's the he's the predominant story writer, singer, guitar player, all, you know, all of that. Um, and frankly, I, I, I can't have more respect for him for being as vulnerable as he is. Right. I mean, some of the stuff talking about you know coming from a broken home, some of that stuff is can be more generic and and definitely relatable. But for example, the track "Wake Me Up When September Ends." I mean, it's a song about the loss of his father. Right. Yeah. Um, I'm fortunate enough to still have my father with me, so I'm, I can't relate to that part of it. But, you know, many people who've lost parents, you know, they speak of how it never leaves them. And there's constant reminders, you know, um, in their life that keep those wounds fresh, never really allowing them to fully heal. Um, and one line that I that for some reason stands out to me for that um, is drenched in my pain again, becoming who we are. Um, mm. having lost loved ones of my own, I can feel that like the pain of, from loss forms and shapes our present and our future, you know, whether we like it or not. And the memory of the loved ones are always a part of us, you know, whether they be the fond and happy memories or the sorrow of their loss. So I, I just, the way that he words that and the way that that's always with him and then having to sing that to, you know, 30,000, 40,000, 50,000, you know, people, who are all singing it back to him. And maybe some of them don't know, you know, the origin of the song. I can't imagine what that has to feel like. I mean, there, mm. there are times where I talk about someone that I lost and I get choked up just thinking about that. Right. Um, and then he has to do that. And then, you know, whatever, four minutes later, sing, you know, like minority or something like that and be jumping <laughs> around and, and happy again and, and all that stuff. So to Long be able view. to, yeah, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> so to be able to like, kind of like, bear that you know um you know the put that on a sleeve or heart on a sleeve you know however you want to word that and and do that so i would imagine that the play for him was validating too right to to you know some of these characters and these thoughts that he's had and that he was able to you know put into lyrics which is one thing right a lot of people use lyrics or poetry as a as an outlet but to be able to put them out there and then have somebody be like you know what these are these are better you know, these can also be something else. They can be a play and they can be, you know, I mean, there was like talks for a while about it becoming a movie, which I think fizzled out. But just the fact that something like that could even happen from lyrics that he wrote, you know, you know, a lot based in his own life. It's it's got to be very validating for him. I can imagine that he did become emotional from that. It's great. Yeah, uh, definitely a great part of the doc. Definitely ties uh, so many of these 
elements of the album back together. Uh, real quickly, is this the artist's best album, Kenny? So to me, it is, um, which you've heard me talk about all these other things. So, of course, that's become quite obvious. But to me, it is. Um, I also very much so like 21st Century Breakdown. Um, I think that's a, a really good album as well. Uh, but I kind of see them as kind of like together, which is mm. cheating to some degree. Now, all of that said, I, you know, 1994's Dookie was a yeah. huge part of my youth and a huge part of me growing up. And it was like, you know, some of the first music like that that I'd ever heard. And it was just like blew my mind. Right. Um but I think that if I look back now, I can bypass that nostalgia and say that this this is their best album. Um, it also, I mean, it was, uh, I mean, it was nominated for uh, three Grammys or well, uh, two, and then uh, American Idiot, the Broadway was also nominated for one. So you know, ultimately ended up you know winning five uh or winning three grammys so i feel like that was some validation from the music industry or whoever you want to say to for say sure. that that was you know obviously one of their best albums as well so I, I think that it is their best album but i mean i can also argue as well i mean i i like their other albums as well so what about you what do you think so i i'm kind of a uh kind of have to recuse myself on this one i i don't know their catalog well enough it's not for me to decide but it feels like it. Uh, it feels like it. I, I would say maybe in a first tier, uh, like Dookie and this one. And it was interesting in Bullet in a Bible how many times, maybe it wasn't that many times, but more than once they mentioned Dookie and how now Dookie is behind us. And now we've moved, like kind of turned the page on that chapter. And now this is the new chapter. So uh, if you're talking about like First act, second act for Green Day. I think those two albums kind of headline it. Uh, yeah, I would say my my kind of best album feelers go up when an artist creates something creatively dynamic or unique in their canon, and the record is meaningful culturally and or and or commercially successful. So all of those things are going on with American Idiot. Uh, so it's certainly in the running. Uh, I, I would imagine. Even the the coolest hipsteriest Green Day fan would have to acknowledge, uh, but uh, you know it's not totally for me to decide on that one. Um, so last question uh, before we move on to the Petty album, and this is the custom question. So um, kind of a, a broad one here, but where does American Idiot fall in your pop punk hierarchy? And not and not like greatest albums, but more so just like kind of your favorite. Uh, albums of the genre. Uh, I imagine it's towards the top, but uh, what might some of the the other ones be? So it is certainly near the top, uh, along with Dookie as well, just because I've just listened to them so much, you know, on, on repeat, it seems like. Um, I, I would say that around that time, I, I was also, uh, I'm also a pretty big Blink-182 fan. I also very much so enjoy Yellow Card. Um, so Ocean Avenue for me, that one is is a banger from, from start to finish. Um, both the normal and the acoustic renditions, uh, pretty cool. Um, also very much so enjoy Newfound Glory. Um, I think Catalyst is a, a great album, Sticks and Stones. I mean, th those are, I mean, those are just part of like, 
I almost forget like what albums they're on because I just, I listen to all the songs now. And, and nowadays you can kind of like pick like a list, right. Of, of the greatest songs or whatever. You don't even really have to do that anymore, which is cheating and lazy. I acknowledge. Uh, but you know um, I would say albums like that. Uh, I also very into Jimmy world. Um, so I, nice. I enjoy, enjoy a couple of their peak albums as well. Just a lot of that pop punk scene, man. I mean, I could listen to so much of that music. And even now I listen to it and with some nostalgia, but there are definitely times where I'm blaring music like that on the golf course. And I can see that there are younger people looking around and they're like, what the fuck is happening in front of me? Here? Like, what's going on here? Um, so I, I would say that in the genre, I mean, they, they are a staple to me in pop punk, um, but they're also... More like, specifically, sorry, for American Idiot, the record itself, uh, like, are there other, like, records that are up there with it? it uh, not so much the artist, but the record itself. Sorry, I, I should have been more clear. No, no, you're okay. You're okay. So um, I would say that it is, a, if it's not my favorite, it's it's in the top three, I would say, for, for favorite albums. I kind of have a, a weird... Um, I don't know, music taste, I suppose, in a way. So there's, there's some, some country albums in there as well. There's some, some Bob Seger albums in there. Tom Petty's, um, damn the torpedoes is definitely up there as well. Um, oh, baby. which, which we can talk about later. Um, <laughs> but yeah, man, I, I just, it's hard for me because when I think about some of the other music, it's almost like I need, uh, it's, it's, it feels to me like an NCAA tournament type thing. I have like four number one seeds, if you will. And they each yeah. kind of represent a different, a different region, right? Like they're the oh. best of their thing. Right. So I have like the pop punk and I have a country and I have a rock and a, you know, so to me, I, I it's definitely up there. I, I don't know if it's number one so overall. This, it, okay. It might okay. So maybe might depend the number on, one might depend seed. on when you ask me. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so it's it's definitely like a Duke or a, a Carolina, at least. It's a blue uh, blood. It's a blue blood yeah. in my life, for sure. Yes. <laughs> nice. So I reached into my bag. Uh, I don't listen to a ton of pop punk anymore, but there are a couple records I still uh, kind of come back to. Uh, the Lawrence Arms, Apathy and Exhaustion was one that Zach and I wore out in the dorms. Uh, the Matches, Yvonne Dahl Killed the Locals, I still listen to. Uh, Blink-182, Take Off Your Pants and Jacket, uh, far and away, I think, my favorite Blink record, although Enema, you know, um, pretty pretty great as well. Uh, Saves the Day, couple different records, but for some reason, the one that came out in 2004, uh, the Ups and Downs and B-Sides record, Zach and I just listened to that so much in the dorms. I imagine the way I feel about that album and the tones and the, the things that kind of go on in my body when it comes on are, are probably pretty similar to what, what happens when American Idiot comes on. Uh, Alkaline Trio from here to the infirmary. These are all albums that came out like 2001 to 2004, basically. So, uh, a lot of that stuff in there. So, uh, I think we're, uh, I think we're, uh, we're done on the, uh, green day. Uh, did you have a, a custom question as well, or did we want to move on? Um, well, hmm, I don't know if I really do. I no sweat to if think not. Of yeah. Yeah. Um, I would say. Yeah, no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> no sweat, buddy. All right, so we could probably move on to the Tom Petty record here. Uh, do you have the essentials for that bad boy? I do. So yes. Long After Dark is the fifth album of 13 by Tom sure Petty is. and the Heartbreakers. 
Uh, the album was produced by Tom Petty himself and Jimmy Iovine and was released on November 2nd, 1982. Yeah, baby. Man. It's crazy to think that the album came out that long ago and still produces such good music to listen to now. Uh, but we're going to get into that. Um, so, Danny, this was your album choice. I know that uh, that part of you uh, was hoping I would pick a Tom Petty album that's kind of like our feature artist together uh, in our whatever man relationship that we have. Um, <laughs> and and I, I thank you for indulging me on the Green Day thing. I wanted to pick Tom Petty. I'm sure that we could talk about Tom Petty. I'm not sure anyone would listen after about 12 hours of us talking about Tom Petty. But <laughs> yeah, man, so long after dark, dude. Um, I'm excited to hear uh, what you think about it and and uh, and some of your thoughts. So I guess, let me start. How, how does it make you feel? How does, how does long after dark make you feel? Well, I'd like to start by saying that uh, my man relationship with you feels great. I couldn't be happier with the status of our man manship. Uh, this album makes me feel fired up in a weird way. Uh, I feel like the sonically the album is pretty fun. If it were a concert, it would be a blast. Now, it's pretty strange because realistically, this is kind of a dark album for Petty. Like on the surface, uh, these are some pretty great Petty uh, heartbreaker rock songs. But there's under the, you know, under that, there's uh, there was some underlying stuff going on in Petty's life. Also with the rest of the band that uh, made it a little darker. So uh, when I first listened to this album, I was like, wow, it was it was somewhat of a gateway Petty album for me uh, because it fired up a way to unlock a deeper level of love for Petty's music. Um, I'd been kind of setting you up for a couple months. Like you said, I knew I was going to pick a Petty album the whole time. It was only a matter of uh, kind of like picking which one. Uh, Petty had already been connecting with me uh, for a long time, unlike a uh, few artists ever had. Uh, so I knew that there was a lot of kind of buried treasure in the catalog. And to pick an album that I was going to uh, do with you, I, I kind of set up like an experiment to do so. Um, so uh, what I did basically, uh, and when I go through all of an artist's albums, uh, which I've done with a lot of the big big kind of hitters like Dylan, uh, with Bowie, with Neil Young. Um, you know, I've listened to the Beatles catalog through several times. Um, and, and what I generally do is I'll just listen through, I pull songs from them, put it onto uh, a playlist uh, of that artist. Not very comprehensive stuff here, but uh, basically uh, over the holidays, I was baking cookies one day and I was like, I'm going to listen to the first pre-pack up the plantation Heartbreakers records because uh, first record comes out in 76 that live record pack up the plantation comes out in 85 that to me is kind of like a marker for the band it was like their first kind of wave of albums it was like that first charge of momentum uh, and I'm like I'm gonna listen to those I'm gonna bet that there's one in there that uh, I haven't spent enough time with and that's gonna really stand out for me and sure enough uh, one of them did so uh, as I was going through and using that process that I described of just like pulling songs uh, from the different albums, uh, starting uh, with the, the 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 debut record, uh, which is self-titled Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers in 76. I pulled seven of the 10 songs from that album into my playlist. Uh, the second one, uh, You're Gonna Get It in 78, I pulled six of the 10 songs. Uh, the third record, 
a little record called Damn the Torpedoes in 79. I pulled seven of the nine songs. Uh, and then uh, Hard Promises, 81. I pulled seven of 10. But then Long After Dark, 82, I pulled eight of the 10 songs off of it, which is the highest percentage. And it's just the highest figure of songs that I pulled from any of them. And then Southern Accents in 85, I pulled five of the nine songs. That album is totally fucking hilarious. Uh, There will be a Music Friends about it one day. Hopefully we do it together. Um, And I love that album as well. Uh, Some of the songs, even though there's not as many, I love, uh, you know, uh, I love a lot of those songs. Uh, They have a very high peak, I'd say. But uh, yeah, I mean, Long After Dark, like, really stood out. I was just going through it. Uh, I'm making I'm making cookies. I'm I'm kneading dough. I'm throwing chocolate chips. I'm there's fucking marshmallows, whatever else, uh, you know. And I and like again, like at a, at a kind of a surface level, I'm just hearing this from the other room. I'm like, wow, this record's really standing out. There's a lot of great rock songs here. And so I was like, that's that's going to be the one. So uh, in that context, I was feeling fired up about this album because there's just uh, it's it seemed like a unheralded petty rock album. But then as uh, I got my hands on it and I started digging in deeper, it was like, wow, there's there's a lot here. Uh, the band was going through quite a lot of shit. And so ultimately I feel uh, conflicted about like, you know, uh, wh- you know, where this was in the petty kind of discography and whatever. But ultimately I feel like this is kind of looked at as maybe one of the, of the Heartbreakers' lesser albums, but to me, it speaks so loudly that it's like still an, a great album, uh, but isn't, you know, one of the one A albums for them. So I feel all kinds of things about this album, but mostly I just feel stoked uh, about any Heartbreaker record, and uh, to find one kind of off the beaten tr- beaten path was a lot of fun. So uh, for you, uh, how did this album make you feel? Man, so I'm gonna echo some of the I'm gonna echo some of the uh, the thoughts that you had about love it, it as well. Love it. Um, so similar to you, I, this album had kind of gone under the radar. My initial listen, I of course noted some of the the ones that made it into singles and some of the songs that I already knew. Um, but man, to refer to something to to refer to an album as like maybe not as good as some of their other ones or, or whatever that is. And then think about the fact that there were still like three like dynamite singles on there yeah. that went on to be on the, the greatest hits. I, I mean, that's unbelievable. I feel like there are artists that have out al- like complete albums that happen that don't contribute to their overall catalog. They're, they were trying something out, they were doing whatever. And, and to see that, that songs like that can be on this, on this album uh that was fun that was fun to to listen to i also yeah. it, just in comparing it to to the earlier one we reviewed just the the overall length of 37 minutes uh for yeah the whole baby album, man. high and tight i know man they keep it efficient <laughs> they keep it efficient i love it dude. i love it like listening to it overall i'm like holy shit it's over already like i, I yeah. couldn't believe it um but no i i so i would say that whatever maybe if i had to use a word i would say I would say grateful because I'm mm, grateful that yeah. you picked this album. There are a lot of other petty albums that we that we maybe could have dug deeper into, or maybe that I enjoy more. But I'm grateful that you picked this one because I didn't really know it, um, and I didn't really, you know, again having listened to a lot of his like hits and tracks like that, I, I didn't know that this is where some of them originated from and it's cool to see them in that timeline of of the different albums that that you mentioned, um, especially because. 
it's still unbelievable to me that after, you know, over a span of 40 plus years, there were so many hits spread over so much time and so many albums. I mean, now, now it's different because artists don't really put out albums per se, but to think about the fact that like they had all these singles on all of those different albums. Right. And, and singles are obviously different than what you choose for your playlist. Right. Um, but still the fact that like, there are songs that most people would know most people that say they like rock and roll or whatever it is. Um, or if they call themselves a Tom Petty fan, the fact that you could get probably 40 or 50 songs in and still have songs that people are very aware of, know all the lyrics to just speaks to his, you know, ability as a songwriter and everything like that. So it was kind of fun to dive into one that I, I was less familiar with um, and, and hear some of these songs again and uh, again for some of the hits and then to hear them for the first time on some of the other ones as well was, uh, was exciting for me. Agreed. Grateful. I feel I feel very grateful uh, to have this album. And there's just as I as I continue to kind of I know I know so many of these other artists albums like so well. And it's like it's very exciting to me to think about like going through the rest of Petty's catalog. I, I would say these first six albums are probably the real treasure of the Heartbreaker catalog. Um, after this, you get you get some good stuff, but then like Echo, Last DJ, it's it you know it's it's not quite the same quality. But there's still there's still stuff there. There's still like you know a lot to be kind of uncovered. So it's it's exciting and I'm definitely grateful uh for their catalog. I just fucking love Heartbreaker Records, man. It, like there's just something about uh the their intention. Like it, it's it's rock music, but the sincerity with Petty's voice, um there's a lot of different utility to to Heartbreaker Records. Like uh different moments in your life, um different emotions. It's it's like I I just get I just get fired up talking about it, you know? Yeah, man, I couldn't agree more. I, I feel similar uh, about a lot of his tracks, not just on this album, but on all the other ones as well. Um, one of the things that kind of stood out on this album to me, and well, I'm sure we'll dive more into it, but like just the the versatility of Petty's voice. Like he can. Oh, he can, baby. Yes. Like I, I just I couldn't get over it. Like just from one track to another, it, it almost sounds like a different person. And like sometimes the draw that he has and then sometimes the way that he just kind of like punches at you. I, I just it's great, man. And I, and I know that, like you mentioned, it, it might not have been coming from as happy a place, but he can still like put enough emotion into the song that it doesn't feel like, you know, it doesn't feel like a breakup album or it doesn't feel like something like that. Right. Where where everything is just kind of hovering over it. Um, certain tracks certainly have that feel, but I think that was done purposefully. And and just, oh man, I just I can't get over his versatility of of how to navigate certain notes and how to sing certain ways. I just, it blows my mind. I, it kind of reminds me of like my shitty shower singing. There's like sometimes <laughs> where I put a draw on like a country thing or on a pouty, on a petty, you know, album, or I'll, you know, try to sing like in a whiny way with the punk rock or, you know what I mean? Um, it, but he can do it and he puts it on an album and it fucking goes, you know, it, it becomes a single. Kills so I, I just can't believe it. I it's just, it's, it's amazing. It never, never ceases to amaze me. Um, Agreed. Well, so kind of going down the list here, what would you say is the most interesting uh, instrument on this album? All right. So just running down uh, some of our guys here, Tom Petty, guitars, Prophet 5 synthesizer, lead vocal, Mike Campbell, guitars, and then the organ on We Stand a Chance, Howie Epstein, 
new bassist, bass guitar, yeah, backing vocal. So, and then Ron Blair is the bass only on Between Two Worlds. Uh, Ron Blair, I believe, was the bassist up until this uh, fifth record, this fifth Heartbreaker record. Um, he was, and then and then he said that he was getting burnt out, so he he took a break from the band, and then he actually took over after Howie's untimely passing uh, and came back with the Heartbreakers. Bam, exactly. Uh, ben Montench. Uh, uh, the <laughs> the the future <laughs> the future namesake, Kenneth Benmont Tench, <laughs> Marion, <laughs> uh, acoustic and electric pianos, Hammond and Vox organs, Oberheim OBXA synthesizer, backing vocal. So, uh, if I really had to pick like a literal translation, I, I would say that Benmont on this album is is all over the place, and he creates some of the most interesting sounds. Um, but I've got a, a different answer here. And if I continue to run down, uh, I've got Stan Lynch on drums and backing vocal, Phil Jones, extra percussion. So, But my answer, and uh, in line with what you had just made a point about, is the lead vocal, Tom Petty. Uh, the sincerity, the weirdness, bending cadence and tone, depending on what the song asked for. Sometimes swagger, sometimes insecurity, sometimes frustration, sometimes high energy, sometimes low energy. Uh, it's it's incredible, and and he has such a unique voice. You wouldn't think that he could do so much with it, but it really uh, is all over the place on this album, and it's what stood out to me as well. So it's so cool that it resonated with you as well. Yeah, man, I I just I can't get over. I mean, it, it's like it is like an instrument, right? He uses it in so many different ways, and it's so creative, and uh, and the fact that he can do so and excel while doing is is very impressive. Um, yeah. So for I, you, what, what what do you think? Yeah, I would say that it, not an instrument per se, but I think that the introduction of of Howie Epstein to to the Heartbreakers oh, is baby. is kind of what stands out to me. Um, I I enjoy Howie. He's got those sweet uh, sweet curls, which I can relate to with my long hair. Um, not curly, <laughs> but you know, not not quite as uh, Howie Epstein curly. But you guys can't see Kenny Marion right now, but he looks like Paul McCartney in January. 1969 it i'm having a hard time keeping my composure here but anyway go ahead (laughs) gas me up danny gas me up uh so one of the things that that always stood out to me with howie epstein and and maybe it's because it's mentioned in so many interviews and documentaries and everything was just how he was able to vibe with tom um i know that on a lot of the previous albums stan lynch sang a lot of the the backing vocals um and they're they're great obviously i enjoy those albums as well um but Man, something about how he has seen in his way to that he harmonizes with Tom felt like it kind of unlocked uh, unlocked that instrument to some degree to me, um, and uh, and yeah, I don't know, man. I I I enjoy his contribution to the Heartbreakers. Um, not a big fan of like you know, it kind of like the NBA thing, the changing teams, all that kind of stuff that that, that ends up happening. But to me, yeah. it didn't really feel like that. It felt like this was kind of an upgrade. They upgraded along the wing there, and uh, and man, I I just enjoyed his his contributions overall to the band. I'm not saying on this album specifically, but because this was the first album he contributed to um, after coming over from from Del Shannon's band, um, in which Del always held it against Tom for taking uh, for taking Howie from him, but. I I don't know. I just enjoyed his his contributions to to the Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers catalog. So I felt like I'd uh, give it some love here. Love it. I think that's uh, an interesting aspect of the of the whole record, especially the the backing vocal part um, as they transitioned away from Stan Lynch and then one day would really transition away from Stan Lynch. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah. Um, so 
so there's a lot of good songs on here, but are there any, what, what one would you say is your favorite? So looking at the record uh, from a wide view, you got 10 songs and it is rare in the sense that this is not a kind of front-loaded record to me. One and five are awesome. I think six and 10 are even better, frankly. Um, and then another kind of observation I had with the different songs is that there's only really three songs that are rather slow. The rest of them are fairly upbeat, kind of heartbreaker rock songs. So uh, You Got Lucky, the second song, which I believe is the only song, I I'm certain actually, that it's the only song on the uh, greatest hits that made it from this record. And it's a weird song. I, it was never like one of my favorite uh, uh, petty songs and I, and I enjoy it, but it's like, it's, it's weird. It, it really is like really unique, but it is a little slower along with between two worlds and um, a wasted life. The, the uh, last song on there. So a lot of upbeat songs, uh, a very, a very like consistent and like high floor record it's almost like uh it's like the james harden of like petty records where like maybe you don't get like the the 9.6 songs but like this this record's giving you like 8.1 to 8.4 every time uh and that's why i think when i was going through and maybe i should have described what my criteria was for picking songs to this playlist it's basically just any song that's interesting to me any song that just kind of stands out doesn't have to be any certain way but it was like Eight of the ten so songs stood out to me because it was like, okay, this feels like a high level, at least like, like good to great petty song. Um, and I don't think that the song or the album necessarily has like a like a nine point two plus, but like there's a lot of like in that eight range. Um, and so uh, the one, the couple that do really stand out, like Straight Into Darkness. Uh, the the one I would I would say is actually my favorite is We Stand a Chance. Uh, it's got kind of that sinister rock to it um premier hand claps like very tasteful hand claps uh <laughs> as good as it gets on the hand claps <laughs> just a couple just a couple just like real quick and sweet you know uh and then a really sneaky great ben Montench uh synth melody that plays out the song at the very end um yeah i i would say another comment on like song specifically is that Straight Into Darkness specifically, but then also um, uh, Change of Heart are, if you listen to them sonically and like you take the words out, these sound like Heartbreaker songs that would have more uplifting or altruistic, optimistic, positive uh, vibes to them. But then you listen to the words and you're like, holy shit, like, like Straight Into Darkness, it, the, the song kind of builds up and then like it builds right into the chorus and then you think it's going to be like something positive, but then it's like, we went straight into darkness. It's like, whoa, like <laughs> what happened there? <laughs> so I think that really plays on like the, the fact that like they're still creating kind of like, like peak petty stuff, but then there's just like a darkness kind of going on with, with Tom um, and his marriage that isn't going well, doesn't really want to be it anymore, doesn't know how to get out of it. Um, so uh, those two songs really stood out to me. I'm sure there's some other ones that uh, sonically are a little up, upbeat, but then the lyrics are like pretty, pretty dark. So um, yeah, so We Stand a Chance was my favorite. Uh, what was your favorite? So I have on uh, I have on my list here that uh, tracks two through seven were my favorite. Yeah, <laughs> is that baby. cheating? Is that cheating in any way? No, um, give it to me, man. I 
I just I, I enjoy them all for for different reasons. But dude, the the pace in which it moved from two to seven was great. So you got lucky into deliver me change of heart, yeah. finding out deliver me so up, good. And then you flip it over into we stand a chance and straight into darkness. I, I really enjoyed all of them. Um, I see what you mean about the, the the darker side. It's kind of funny that you mentioned the you got lucky thing. I, that was a song. I heard it initially and it was like it kind <laughs> of it like went against how I like the lyrics just just speaking just about the lyrics. It went against like how I feel as a person, if that makes any sense. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sadly, sadly, I'm just uh, I I'm just uh, I'm a person who constantly thinks i'm the reason like i'm the bad person i'm the reason that something's wrong in a relationship all of these different things it's kind of a self-deprecating quality that i have so then to hear him be like no man i'm i'm the good one and you you don't realize how good i yeah. am was kind of like the first time i heard it i was like dude who the fuck is this guy right yeah um, or character in the song obviously but then once you listen to it more like i it like, I don't know, it, it does kind of resonate with me in like an underappreciated way. Um, and there have been relationships that I've been in where I was underappreciated and this maybe resonated with that part of me. Right. Um, so the, the initial thing of how I, how I view life. Right. And then versus the way that Tom makes me look at it and view life. I'm like, Holy shit. I did feel that way at some point. And I'm not saying I feel the same way as Tom and all of these songs that he's ever written in his life, but it was kind of cool to to see it from both ways um and and to know that uh to know that it was you know the one that made the greatest hits album from it and everything as well kind of adds into that i still don't think it's my favorite but worth noting in just from from the lyrics thing i think that if i had to pick a favorite i may be between deliver me and straight into darkness um Love it. yeah just the the way the songs go out i enjoyed deliver me the, there was a lyric in there specifically um and i don't i I don't remember exactly what it is, but he basically just talks about like being uncertain about something and then just saying, fuck it. Let's, let's just go balls to the wall type of thing. And those are certainly not the words, but the way that I heard it. Right. Um, And I, I like that man being an indecisive person. I've always been an indecisive person. I sit, I labor and labor on thoughts about things and, and then to, to hear that as well. And just, you know, fuck it. We'll do it live type of type of thing is such a cool mentality. And it's, uh, it's somewhat uplifting in an album that doesn't feel that way the rest of the way around. Um, so the optimist in me kind of appreciates that in some degree. So I think that if I had to pick, I, I would maybe say deliver me is my favorite. Great song. I love what you said about you got lucky because I, one of the ways that even when I wasn't critically thinking about music that I appreciated Petty was that I felt that his lyrics and the music as a whole uh, felt relatable, uh, the sincerity uh, that he came across with. And, and that's even just in like the cadence of his voice. Um, but there's there's a, a relatability and a specificity even when he's he's being kind of vague about things like it's just so easy to take things that petty says and put them into your own life and um even in like an empathetic way it's like there's just like something about his music that just like makes me feel okay even if we're talking about something that is tragic uh so there's 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 definitely like a a contradiction there but I, it's a thought that I even had when I was just a dummy listening to his greatest hits in 2002 or whatever. Uh, and it's only get, it only gets deeper as I understand more about him and as I listen to more of the music. So 
Um, I love that. Deliver Me is a fucking killer track. Yeah, man. I So just circling back on what you just said there, I, I think that that is what that's what makes Tom Petty, I think, one of the greatest songwriters that I've ever really got to gotten to experience, frankly. I like I was just thinking about it as you were saying it. But he's almost like a, he's like Tom Hanks in a way. Like, oh, baby. He can, yes, he, he can. He can play so many roles and do so many things. And you believe every one of them like you. You believe oh. right that 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 he's sad or that he's happy or that he's upset or that he's you know, underappreciated or, or whatever it is. And you believe him every time and just his way to, to write songs and, and exactly how you describe that he, he leaves it vague enough for you to be able to relate, but also specific enough for you to be like, man, this is for me, <laughs> this song is yeah. for me. Right. Yes. And so me, right. I, I mean, me listening as my person and then all these other people listening across the country, everybody feels that same way. And to make everybody feel the same way, but in different ways, I guess it's just such a talent. And I, I just, I can't, I can't express my appreciation for, for that enough. And, uh, and it, it seems like that was something that everybody else appreciated about him too. I know that Mike Campbell's spoken about that as well, about how his ability to speak to the everyman and, and not the everyman, not like the stereotypical American, whatever, but just the average person. Right. And, and, also to be able to reach the people who, you know, are in darker places or in happier places and allow him allow those people to, to really either, you know, commensurate with those lyrics or to, to celebrate them and, and sing along, you know, like some of his bigger rock, you know, bigger songs. Um, I just, I can't, I, I, I just can't express it enough. I, I, I mean, it's one of the things that it's clear in in this album as well but it's just something that he has in his voice and something he's able to do with his songwriting abilities and i mean he wrote every song on this album um obviously with some help from from mike campbell on a couple of the tracks as well but just i i just it blows my mind that you can you can put so much into a song and then he just is like no nope, okay i'll just do another song and i'll do another song and i'll do another song it's just it's unbelievable to me i i that's know. it I, I mean that's 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 the petty thing that's uh that's why we love him plus it licks like these fucking songs like fucking kill like <laughs> like having that sincerity that level of connection but then also songs that i want to smash bush bush lights to i might not do that very often but i i want to you know <laughs> so absolutely it's man. beautiful uh, yeah that's great dude and the fact that like both you and i just had to labor over what our favorite song was on the album i mean yeah. think about that like right like the first album we both we shared the track we knew exactly what it was and there was no doubt this one is like you know what maybe if you ask me tomorrow <laughs> i i might think that change of heart is my favorite track yeah or, or whatever <laughs> and and that's awesome man that's awesome like you said i there isn't one like clear you know like that's the song on this album yeah. that, that, do, that right. does exist on other, on other petty albums. Uh, but man, they're all like, gosh, they're all so good. It's great. It's great. Yeah. So what would you say is an interesting insight about the, uh, the production or the story of the album? All right. I got a lot of stuff for here. Uh, so, uh, cut me off, um, uh, at any point. Um, so the first thing I've got here is from, uh, Petty, the biography by Warren Zanes, uh, which we've both read. Um, and I was, I was going to steal a bonus question here and just ask, uh, 
what stuck with you from reading that book? I, I know it's been a minute since you read it. Is there are there certain anecdotes or are there was there a, what, like a certain line or like something about a certain album that like really stuck with you? Because I read it in in like lead up to, to doing this and like a lot of that stuff is pretty present for me. And uh, I'm curious uh, if there's anything that stood out to you. Yeah, so I I read that book um, several years ago now. Um, but one thing specifically about Tom Petty in general was that I, unfortunately for me, um, I kind of got into Tom Petty in the later part of, of his own life and in my life as well. Um, so I was kind of like doing backwards digging, right? Um, so yeah. reading the book, watching the documentary, learning about some of this stuff was probably things that people already knew, right? Going along and, and kind of living it with Tom Petty. Um, so I, I definitely, I, I regret not getting into him sooner. I never got to see him in concert. That is definitely a regret of mine. Um, but anyway, I say all that to say that like, reading the book, I was just like, I, I finished the book and I was like, oh my gosh, like I just wish that I could have experienced more of this as it was happening. Um, because just the 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 world that, that he lived in and occupied is just something that I just can't get enough of. It's like something that mm. I just want to keep diving into more and more and more. And the book was great. The book gave me a lot of insight into him. Um, I couldn't believe how intertwined and not not really intertwined because he did his own thing but just how much other artists wanted to be around him and how Ooh. those things how those things just kind of happened for him and yeah. that sounds silly because i know that things don't just happen they happen because he worked for it and he you know presented those opportunities to himself but i just couldn't believe it man and like the way you know obviously you end up getting the Wilburys out of his relationships with some of those other members, um, which we don't have to get into, but I just, some of those things, man, like I, I'm a big believer in, in networking all the time and kind of like talking all the time and like always building bridges to things. Cause you never know where they might go or what bridge might be the bridge that you look back on and say, wow, you know, and it just seemed like he was very good at that. He never wrote anybody out of his life. Um, he certainly had some dark, times and moments and stuff where where it, it could have happened right where people could have maybe written him off perhaps um in in some of those dark times and and it never really seemed to happen for him he seemed to be a likable enough guy and a down-to-earth enough guy that other people felt like he was approachable and wanted to hang out with him and wanted to be a part of that and i just i can't like that to me is somewhat relatable and also it's just enviable like for for me personally like i enjoy every aspect of that um so i would say that that's something that i took from the book i couldn't i couldn't soak that up enough um, yeah i love that uh the first leg of what you said really resonates with me um the you know the wilbury stuff is is indicative of his status right uh, the wilburys are orbison Harrison, Dylan, but then Petty. And then like all of a sudden you realize like, oh wait, Petty's a 1A rock guy, like in, in the, in the canon of like this, this genre, you know? And I think that Don't that- tell out Jeff Lynn. Come on, man. We gotta, we gotta get <laughs> Jeff Lynn some love. Lynn, Lynn. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so that, that was definitely a cool thing for me. Um, the Stevie Nicks stuff was, was like interesting to me. Seeing the actual timeline of, um, you know, like pre-pack the plantation, post the solo stuff, the drug years, the druggy albums, that type of stuff was interesting. And then for me, 
the Beatles references, which, you know, we talked about the Beatles with Green Day. And I, I feel the need to just say that there are people out there with the take of like the Beatles are overrated. Um, you know, I don't I don't like the Beatles, that stuff. That's fine to me. But there's a reason why people look at the Beatles as the North Star of this genre. Like everyone was trying to emulate and still as recently as, as Green Day and, and, and uh, beyond that, like people are looking at what the Beatles did and like, I want to do it that way. And that's why they're so important. So the Beatles references were interesting to me because it came up time and again. He's like, is this like he'd be thinking about a specific creative decision, commercial decision. Is this what the Beatles would have done? <laughs> that that was my <coughs> that was mind blowing to me because it's like I I wouldn't think about Petty's music in the in the Beatles way like really ever. But the fact that he did was like super super interesting to me. So, um, uh, where I was going with that is that I have an excerpt here, another kind of long one, but but totally worth it. Um, I think really sums up the album. And this is Warren Zane's uh, writing of Petty. He says he says he doesn't like Long After Dark, uh, but what he doesn't like is the world he was living in during that period of time. Hopelessness, loss, lust, the impossibility of love. A man who didn't want to be in his marriage, but didn't know how to leave it, allowed his feelings to leak onto a recording without a lot of symbolism to hide behind. No bride or groom were going to make their way to the dance floor while the wedding band played these songs. But together, <laughs> the songs compromise. The songs comprise uh, another of Petty's beautiful collection. His aim wasn't to write what he thought we wanted to hear, but the emptiness and the anger he brought to it somehow left a little room for more rock and roll. So I think that that totally nails it. Um, a lot of the stuff that we've already been talking about. Uh, I also have some kind of quick hits about, you know, where the band was at um, uh, going into this album around the time of this album. So the band, uh, this is the first time they took time off after this record. Uh, this came out 82, Southern Accents and Pack Up the Plantation were 85. Uh, Petty's mom dies. He has surgery on his hand, which I believe he just like punched a wall, something like that. Uh, and then uh, <laughs> during Hard Promises, right? Wasn't that during Hard Promises? I think that's exactly right. Yeah. 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 Um, so uh, Ben Montench was working his way to recovery. Uh, Mike Campbell was hospitalized for exhaustion. Um, Lynch was further splintering himself from the band. Eventually, he'd kind of uh, go his own way. Uh, this was also the last of the Ivine uh, trilogy of of Petty Records. So, Damn the Torpedoes, Hard Promises, uh, Long After Dark are the three albums that Jimmy Ivine uh, produced for Petty. And Petty uh, famously was was not happy with Ivine's uh, work on this album. He said, it was that album when I felt he'd betrayed me, he says of Ivine with this one, because I believe he was working on a Bob Seger record or it may not have been Seger, but it was it was uh, another rock act, I, I believe. Um, uh, and then I've got two more things here. Both amazing. Uh, the You Got Lucky music video. Have you ever watched this? Damn it, I have not. <laughs> okay, well, we'll we'll change that soon. But it's Mad Max themed and totally hilarious. Uh, maybe the most unintentionally funny thing I've ever seen in my life. Uh, maybe the least cool thing Petty Petty ever did. Uh, it's it 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 feels perfect to like what a weird song you got lucky was. Like I watching it, you're just like you're, if you feel like you're tuning into something like you shouldn't be watching. It doesn't even like seem like a music video. It's it's totally ridiculous. All right, and then the last thing I have, which 
I feel like explains this album. <laughs> but definitely explains the album to follow is a quote. And uh, it is, the bigger picture there was we were all on a lot of cocaine, Ben Montench says. <laughs> he goes on to say, on the Long After Dark tour, I discovered how much cocaine there was in the world. And then I came home and went straight on tour with Stevie Nicks, and boy, did I discover how much cocaine there was in the world. (laughs) And that uh, is just like the perfect highway into Southern Accents, which is just a a ramble of different songs and kind of weird ideas, and you can definitely tell is influenced by cocaine. So a lot of different stuff there. Uh, did you have anything in the way of insights on the record or should we, uh, we can move on to the next one. No, 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 I do. So, um, I, it's kind of funny. You mentioned the Ben Mott stuff that, you know, there's a reason that we look back and we say like living like a rock star. Right. I mean, even, yeah. even the bands that like, you don't even think about, right. Like Ben Montench, the piano, you know, the pianist in yeah, the, yeah. Harvard, right. <laughs> yeah. Was just fucking coked out of his mind. All the time. Just, <laughs> I, what a time to be alive. What a time to be alive. Yeah. Uh, that's great. Um, so one of the things that, um, that I learned actually from, from researching this album that I didn't know, um, where there were two songs on there that, that were originally on the album that did not make the album. Okay. And they, they were cut by Jimmy Iovine, um, who we should give some some talk to, I suppose. So Jimmy Iovine, I I respect him mainly because he helped make Damn the Torpedoes into into what it was. Um, right. And and that's my favorite Pity album. Uh, and I, I will certainly appreciate him for that. Uh, learning more about him, it seems like he kind of it's like his way or the highway type thing. And Petty was able to to kind of marry in that for that short period of time. Um you know, and, and kind of, it's like that, uh, it's like urban Meyer, right. It's like, uh, you know, short bursts of, of greatness. Um, mm. and then he kind of wears on you and then he moves on. Um, oh, and yeah, frankly, like that. yeah, yeah. And frankly, that's fine with me. Um, you know, he, he's he like the produced. Tom Thibodeau. He goes to one team, gets them, gets the best out of them for like a year and a half and then right. everyone hates him and then he leaves and goes somewhere else. Yeah, exactly. And then the people who like experience him are like, oh my gosh, this guy's pushing me to do all of these things. And then after a while, you're like, holy fuck, will you, did you ever stop pushing? Fuck this guy, right? <laughs> um, so, but no. So one of the things that I wanted to mention was that, so the two tracks were, um, were Keep a Little Soul and Keeping Me Alive. And they were both mm. on the, uh, the Tom Petty um, American Treasure, uh, nice. you know, kind of like complete package. And man, I remember liking both of those songs quite a bit when I heard them on the on the American Treasure thing. I had no idea they were supposed to be on uh, Long After Dark. To me, they would have they would have helped it along, um, mainly because they're they're a little bit more upbeat. I understand why they didn't fit the theme of it, and I understand maybe to some degree that's probably why Jimmy Iovine took them off. But it's not like this was a concept album. It's not like it had to be, a, a, you know, an album of just sad songs. So I would have liked to have seen the two tracks on there. Um, I guess there was some pushback uh, keeping me alive specifically. Uh, Tom Petty pushed on uh, with with Iovine and, and ultimately didn't work out that way. But, um, but yeah, man, I, I think that's that's interesting. I, 
you know, there's a lot of these unreleased songs, unreleased versions of songs, right, that come out, especially after an artist has passed away. And especially with the the Tom Petty estate, you know, they're, they push out all these wildflowers things and some of these other things, which is great, right? I mean, I can't get enough of it. I, I love all of it. Some of it might be for money. I don't really give a shit. It's just more yeah. stuff for me, to, more stuff for me to listen to. Um, yeah. So even if it's, even if it's rooted in a bad way, I don't care. Um, but yeah, man, I, those two tracks I think would have, would have helped it along to me. I do know that albums were shorter in the time. So thinking about 10 tracks, 12 tracks, 12 is probably still doable. Um, but I do know that like that starts to veer into, well, do you have enough to make a double album and, and all of that sure. stuff plays into plays into that. So who knows why they ended up on the, on the cutting room floor, but uh, seeing those two tracks and then getting to hear them, you know, now, right. Um, it, it just would have made the album that much better for me. Um, and frankly, I feel like those two songs may have been even singles that could have come off of that, uh, that album as well. Um, so I thought that was interesting. I, I didn't know that before about it, uh, which was pretty cool. Excellent. Um, I'm going to add those to the petty, the petty playlist as soon as this podcast is done, man, keep a little soul, dude. I, there's just something about it. It's so uplifting. It's so happy. He still got his little Southern draw. It's just, Oh, I don't know, man. And, and I don't know if it was ever fully produced. Maybe it's, maybe it's kind of the rawness of the track that, that, that lends itself to, to my liking. Um, but I just enjoy it, man. It's very happy, very upbeat. I, I just I love it. Love it. When it can, comes on, it's kind of like in my rotation, uh, which I was surprised to see some of these unreleased songs make it in the rotation, but I, I really enjoy that one. Um, Beauty. so I know that we kind of touched on this. Um, but in terms of this being what we consider to be Tom Petty's best album, I don't think that either of us can say that, but in terms of like where you'd rank it and, and just in terms of other heartbreaker albums, would you put it like, I, I don't know if I'd put it at the bottom, uh, but I wouldn't put it at the top either, which I think speaks to the quality of the albums that they produced over the years. Um, not necessarily as a detriment to long after dark in general. Yeah, I'm not sure uh, I could give like a tiered uh, ranking right now, but sure. I, I think with the with the Heartbreakers, again, that's just such a high floor of their records. Um, so this is, again, the fifth, the fifth record from here. You go Southern Accents, Post Pack, The Plantation, you've got Let Me Up, Into the Great Wide Open. He does that She's the One record, and then you've got Echo. And then beyond there, like, uh, I would say like everything Echo and Beyond. Like I, I haven't spent enough time with it. I'll go back through it, and surely there's there's some good stuff there. Uh, I don't I don't doubt it. Um, but I would think that these first six plus Let Me Up plus Into the Great Wide Open are probably his best. So of those eight records, I'd probably put uh, Hard Promises. Damn the Torpedoes, self-titled into like maybe a, a first grouping, like a first tier perhaps. Um, and then some combination of the next two into like a second and third tier. I uh, I would say this would probably be in the middle of those records, of those eight, like somewhere in the middle of like what I see like the best part of, of the band and speaks exactly to, uh, you know, the workmanlike quality that this band has of, of just like putting out really, really quality records and and demanding a high level of themselves whenever they, they kind of came together until basically the drug years, 
right? Because Echo was was a, you know an echo of kind of like who he was. Uh, it 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 wasn't really the same band after that, right? It, it genuinely was not. Um, but that's okay. It's it's so good, but. Uh, not on the same level. So unequivocally, I'd say no. Like not his not his best album for sure. For me, uh, his best at least the we're talking heartbreakers. We're talking heartbreakers. So we're not talking solo stuff. So best heartbreakers record is is almost definitely Damn the Torpedoes. Uh, just based on influence and success and and just like what it did for for the band itself. Um, we're talking favorite. Uh, that's a little different question for me. I would say that in listening to this, and, and I did a lot of listening to Hard Promises and Southern Accents, the album that came before and the album that came after this. And Hard Promises, I think, is my favorite Heartbreakers record. And frankly, like right now, I think has actually taken over Wildflowers as like my favorite Petty record. Um, it, it, it does so many different things. I feel like there are so many different uh, kinds of songs, ballads and duets, uh, but still like the Heartland Rock. You've got Insider on there, probably his best Nick's collaboration. There's a lot of good ones, but um, one of the best for sure. I, that album kept blowing me away. I told you already that I listened to that album twice back to back today because it just, uh, it just, it's just really great. But anyway, uh, no, this is not his, his, his best. Uh, this is not the best Heartbreakers album, but as we've been talking about, uh, and looping around, it's just um, an indication of the quality of this artist's ability uh, to be able to have an album that's just kind of sitting there in his catalog. Nobody else is podcasting about it, uh, but we're, we're able to still find kind of gems on it, uh, which is pretty cool. So um, you you kind of already went through it, not, not their best album. What would you say their best album is? And then what would you say is like your favorite? We're talking Heartbreakers. Yeah, so in terms of heartbreakers, it is tough. I didn't mean to put you on the spot there and, and rank them because I now thinking about my oh, own. I loved it. Uh, my own kind of list is is somewhat terrifying, um, mainly because I don't want to say anything shitty about any other album, right? Um, <laughs> it's kind of like a list of like what's best, right? Um, man, I I think that in terms of the best, I my best and my favorite are both damn the torpedoes. Um, oh, I don't yeah. know commercially i know that some of his solo stuff was better i get that and i totally get that but if we're talking about just heartbreakers only um i tend to agree with you about everything past echo although i did enjoy highway companion i know that's a solo thing but i did enjoy that and that was in the mid 2000s um so um but just thinking about heartbreaker stuff man it's so hard to to kind of narrow them down from here I think that if I had to rank them, it would be a tier thing like you. I really enjoy the Damn the Torpedoes. Hard Promises, man, the waiting is, yes. is, an, all, is an all-timer for me, dude. And I just, like, just starting off the album like that, knowing he was following up Damn the Torpedoes, like his greatest commercial success and greatest success in general, you know, knowing that there could be a, a you know, a drop-off in some way or, or something like that. And then coming out with that, I just, man, what a banger, dude. And and that album is is great. Um, I very much so enjoy the the um, the initial album, the the self-titled Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Yeah, yeah. I, I got to give some love to just one song in there that just gets me every time. Um, and it, it's a lesser known one, but the wild one forever on that one. 
dude. Yeah. Unbelievable. It kind of sounds like something that would be on one of his self-titled ones, frankly. Doesn't sound as much like a Heartbreakers track, mainly because it's 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 way more vulnerable. It's way more kind of just him and a guitar type of feel. Uh, but man, really like that track. If you were to ask me, like if, if you played all Tom Petty songs or whatever, and then asked me where that one fell in the timeline, I would not say that was on his first album at all. Uh, but I, I certainly appreciate that. Just had to give that a, a little love. I feel like um, you find that quite a bit with some of his songs. Like I was thinking about Deliver Me. Like doesn't Deliver Me sound like it could have been on any of the first six records? And it, it, it's absolutely. not as dark as like the other ones on this record. So I feel like it's a little interchangeable as well. That first record, dude, 10 songs, 30 minutes. Yeah. High and tight. Dude, max efficiency. I, <laughs> I love it. That, 37 that PER. <laughs> Just great, dude. Great. And man, yeah, Southern Accents, I know that you you talked about how fun that is and maybe that's a whole other podcast in and of itself. I own that one on vinyl um, yeah. and I enjoy that one a lot. It is all over the place, um, totally, but it's also got some really good songs. I like the ideas of it being a, a concept album, the idea of it being, you know, the whole, you know, being from the South thing. And, and some of the tracks on there are just so good, um, but ultimately just ended up failing. It's got the weird Dave Stewart stuff with the Don't Come Around Here No More, um, which is kind of weird um, and feels very out of place initially. Uh, but anyway, I, I think that if I had to, to, I, I guess, I don't know. Damn the Torpedoes, Hard Promises, and the self-title are are in a different realm for me in First terms tier. of Heartbreaker it. albums for me. Um, I do enjoy definitely the other ones and especially parts of the other ones. Um, for example, uh, Listen to Her Heart on mm. You're Gonna Get It is, is an all-timer for me. Um, and man, it's, it's funny to look at the tracks and see just how short they are, the two and three minute tracks that, and, and to just think, think everything that comes <laughs> out of that. But, but yeah, man, I, I, all of his albums are, are good in their own ways, um, which is a cop out for sure. Uh, but I, I think that both you and I can appreciate that. We, we know his discography, we appreciate it. Um, and so there's really no hard feelings in, in ranking one above any other. Um, I'm with you on that. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, the, the last thing would just be kind of our custom question and I'm actually seeing that I did not write one down. So I'm going to just go off the, off the cuff here and ask you are having a child in a short amount of time, uh, about two months here. If you had to name a child after a Tom Petty and the Heartbreaker band member, who would it be? <laughs> <laughs> so before before this recording started we we were chatting about this and the name benmont came up i was talking about how my wife and i are struggling to to maybe find some some names um there are certainly some that i won't divulge certainly publicly like this but we laughed about the fact that i don't know anyone else by the name of benmont famous yeah. not that i know benmont touch personally and then i asked danny and then danny says that he knows someone whose dog is named benmont and then goes those are the only two that i know yeah. <laughs> right. we laughed that one was based on the other uh, and yeah. it was a, and it was a dog but uh, yeah, Benmont certainly a uh, certainly a unique name, uh, at least in strong contender. Life. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. Got right. it. <laughs> so I'm gonna hit you. I'm gonna hit you with a hard question. Um, yes. For which for which I apologize, and I'm and I'm gonna say it, and I don't even know if I have my own answer to it. But 
without diving too much into it, if you had to pick the catalog of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers versus Tom Petty without the Heartbreakers, you can only pick one. Which one are you going with? I think I'm going Heartbreakers. Uh, I love I love Wildflowers. Truly love Wildflowers. Um, Full Moon Fever, you know, almost right there as well. D- definitely a different emotional color on that one, but uh, both great records. Um, I... I really don't know is highway companion the only other solo album or like i believe so yeah oh wow okay yeah that that's pretty easy for me i would say the heartbreaker records as much as i love the other ones um and i'm 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 taking a a, uh, i'm making a gamble here too because i don't know all of them too i'm just almost assuming that there's like more there for me i'd say it's pretty close now but after I, i finally like go through all of these with the depth that i really want to I, I am like fairly certain that um, the Heartbreakers stuff will yield even more than where I'm standing right now. Uh, yeah, yeah, I could say that fairly definitively. I, would you take the solo stuff? You know what? I wouldn't. Um, I just know how much you like Wildflower, so I was hoping to get, uh, hoping to to cause more strife, inner strife for you in that one. Yeah. Um, I, I agree with you. The Heartbreaker stuff is is. I, I would have to pick it. Um, the three solo albums are Full Moon Fever, Wildflowers, and The Highway Companion. Now Wildflowers has like six iterations, so I guess it's probably like 10 total albums. Um, right, but, right. Um, I, I do find it interesting that the that specifically Full Moon Fever and Wildflowers had more commercial success than any of his Heartbreaker stuff. They were all yeah. sold more albums. They all had greater success. Um, so that was rather interesting. That could have just been a perfect kind of combination of the time. And to be clear, the solo album stuff had like 80% of the heartbreakers anyway. It was just right. Tom had more say Semantics and things a little like bit. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It was still Mike Campbell and Ben Montench and and, and a lot of those guys. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that the heartbreakers and I guess if I had to pick two, I would also just pick because Tom loved the Heartbreakers so much. I think that he would pick those as well. So just yeah. kind of going going with that as well. But yeah, I was hoping to hoping to stir you up a little bit more there. I mean, the the solo stuff is definitely nothing to sneeze at. Um, and and certainly, I think to a casual listener, a lot of the songs from the solo stuff would probably resonate with them as well. Um, but to long long adored fans like us i think that we we maybe appreciate the heartbreakers a little bit more and again knowing that they were on a lot of those tracks anyway it's not like it was just tom with like a completely different band you know a lot of them have the same sound you know with the the mike campbell stuff just produced differently some of them with uh the aforementioned jeff lynn um which i know he did all three of the or he did a highway companion and full moon fever not wildflowers with which was rick rubin but um yeah. Anyway, I guess that was uh, that was my my dealer's choice question. So um, uh, I, I think we're pretty much there. We pretty much landed the uh, the petty plane and and uh, obviously got through Green Day as well. The last note I wanted to hit was just that I did see Petty twice live. I I, I can't remember if we talked about this or not. Maybe a little bit, but um, an absolute showman. Um, I remember another beat from the book that continued to come up was he saw himself, the identity of the Heartbreakers was their live act. And he obviously took that very seriously. And when I saw them, I saw them in the summers of, I think, 2005 and 2006 or 2006 and 2007, perhaps. And, um, you know, I was in college and uh, I was just being an idiot on the lawn at Pine Knob and 
you know, hearing basically mostly a, like a greatest hit set, uh, you know, that was cool. But now looking back and I'm like, wow, uh, he really let some of those songs breathe. Uh, they really played like like way longer versions. He would go out to the crowd and just kind of like, like just let everything sink in. It was not a band that was going out there and just playing the hits and um, uh, collecting a check. This was uh, an artist and, and a group of artists that like really cared about their legacy and uh, just another just another feather in the cap of uh, just, the, you know, one of the best, like we talked about, one of the uh, absolute uh, marquee names in this genre that we care so much about. So with that, man, unless you've got anything else, I, I feel like we we nailed it. Um, yeah, go ahead. I, I would say to add to the live thing, I think that that was the reason that the live shows are so good. And I, I only know this from watching, listening to, you know, to the to the stuff that's been recorded over the years. Um, so I'm super jealous that you got to see him live. But I think part of the reason that that Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers were so good live was because they recorded things that way. They did mm. not record things in layers. They recorded things all at once and in a full take. Um, which was probably maddening to some of the band wow. members over the years, but that that's something that that they did up until Jeff Lynne, right? I mean, that that was one of the huge changes in in the production of some of the Tom Petty stuff was that they did everything like that, and they did that because Tom and the band members wanted to sound good live. They didn't want to play anything that they weren't going to be able to recreate live, um, and so. You know, if they played one where, you know, Mike had a good guitar track, but Stan Lynch messed up on the drums, they had to restart it and they didn't just take the the guitar track from it. They played it all, you know, in one succession, you know, successive track. And I think that that's why they were so good live. They, they knew how to play the whole song, exactly how to play it. There was never anything weird or layered or anything like that. And there's certainly positives and negatives to that. Uh, an album could get off track easily, right, by doing that. But Anyway, I don't want to get too too much into the weeds, but I think that that's why they had so much success live because they were they were basically just replaying the songs they already knew how to play and they didn't have any special you know things for them or anything like that. Um, and they did allow their creativity to come out and they could you know let stuff drag, let stuff breathe that you know stuff that can't be on a studio album that allows you know in a live environment. But like you said, man, one of the best, one of the best, and uh, gone too soon, man. But uh, yeah. Thanks for uh, thanks for letting me talk through two of my favorite artists, um, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers and Green Day. Uh, this was really fun. I feel like we could do <clears throat> several other albums from the artists um, and uh, and talk just as just as thoroughly. But uh, this was great, man. Thanks for thanks for having me on and and let me kind of talk about a lot of stuff that shaped who I was and relates to who I am now and and all sorts of it, uh, which is kind of a cool theme between the the two artists. So that was great. Word. That's a great insight about them recording live. Uh, until next time, my friend. Let me ask you something. When did music become so important? It's always been important. I mean, jingles, yeah. But no, everybody keeps coming in looking for a, some song. And they're so specific. You love specific. But I have no idea what's going on out there. Well, no one can keep up. It's always changing. So, Luke. What is the album going to be? Well, I have a question for you. Do you oh, want a heavier right album or a more mellow album? Because I got <laughs> two on deck. I'm going to make you pick. I told you that I would allow you to ask me questions beforehand, but I lied. And I'm going to make you pick. I'm not going to give you any hints. You have to choose one. All right. 
Um, <laughs> I will I will go with the less heavy of the two for your delicate ears. Um, I'm going to go with um, the album is called Hand Cannot Erase. Okay. By Stephen Wilson. By who? Stephen Wilson. Stephen Wilson. I'm not familiar. Can you give me some background? Yeah. Um, Stephen Wilson is probably most well known as being the uh, the main vocalist, guitarist, songwriter for a band called Porcupine Tree. Okay. Which is um, um, you know a pretty important progressive rock, leaning into progressive metal band. So that's where he initially got his name. He's been in a bunch of other projects. Obviously, this is a, a solo project album, but he's also really well known for doing um, remix remasters of like classic prog bands albums and like doing like the big vinyl box sets and stuff. Cool. So he's done um, Yes, King Crimson, Jethro Tull, you know, all those guys. Sweet. Genesis. Um, so really well-known guy i i love his work he's kind of pretentious but that's always better always better that way (laughs) but um yeah i dig it a lot um this is a this album is a 2015 release so relatively recent but um it's a it's a concept album loosely based on um what's her name i just was talking about it the other day in one of my classes joyce carol vincent is the woman's name you might have heard this story about her um she basically dropped off the map she lived in london i think but um disappeared and nobody really noticed and she was dead for three years in her apartment and people found her like the tv was still on and everything but she was just dead in there like a skeleton oh my god like how you can detach from everybody so much so that people don't know you've been dead for three years, like how that wild. So, so he kind of wrote the album loosely based on that. Um, and it's just a super interesting topic and I'm teaching sociology this year and we were talking about social isolation and stuff like that. And I'm like, Oh dude, this story, this album. So I was, you know, pitching it to the kids at school, but they don't, you don't care <laughs> about my <laughs> musical taste. You're like, this isn't this isn't uh, Donda. Like, what? I, I don't listen to to this. Yeah, I'm to listening be... to Olivia Rodrigo right now. Please get this out yeah, of my face. Right. Yes. All right, man. That sounds great. I uh, I appreciate you taking a, a shot. Something I'm not familiar with, uh, and leaning on that genre that I think kind of brought us together in some way is like a, a fringe metal, like an accessible mm-hmm. metal band, mm-hmm. like Tool and uh, Rage Against Machine, which uh, are groups that we've bonded over quite a bit over the years. So, all right, so for mine, I went through a bit of a process as usual. Started off with uh, PJ Harvey. Are you familiar with PJ Harvey at all? No. British female rocker, uh, early 90s, mid 90s made a lot of really interesting music harder kind of garage rock uh definitely came into it thinking a harder rock act was going to get it done so from there went to kind of tool or rage would have been fun to go back through 
you know, these albums that we already know really well, but to right. repurpose them a little bit. Hendrix is one that we've talked about before a yeah. lot. And uh, I'll just put you on the spot uh, and get uh, some bonus Hendrix question out there. Uh, what's your favorite album of his? I, you know, an artist that I love and I know we've talked about a little bit too. Ah, that is tough. You know, on the topic of Hendrix, I saw a picture the other day of him playing with the Ronettes, which nice. was just a su super cool still um, image. But I'm like, oh, dang, that's that's little Jimmy there. He but played in I, like 20 yeah. bands before he yeah. went to New York. Yeah. Um, I would probably pick. um Axis, old as I think I'm. I think I'm with sure. you. I'm thinking with you. The first one is is pretty crazy. Electric yeah. Ladyland, the third one too, because he really only has three studio albums. Uh, yeah, they're all really good. But Axis just kind of feels like the best one. It's like the the cleanest kind of single concept. Um, yeah, I really love that one. So I thought about the War on Drugs. Are you familiar with that group at all? Um, I've heard like a couple tracks that popped up in playlists, but I haven't listened to any albums the full way through. Good deal. I, I'm just trying to squeeze more music conversation out of this, uh, if you couldn't tell. So yeah. uh, War on Drugs, a Philly band, some Petty and kind of Springsteen vibes. Uh, pretty cool. Um, mm -hmm. They've been wrapping a warm hug around me for the last like month and a half here in frosty Anchorage. So I thought yeah. I might go that direction. But where I landed, Luke, is with a, a little band that put out an album May 8th, 1970. Oh. And uh, that's going to be Let It Be by the Beatles. And so oh, recently there was a, a little bit of a release on Disney Plus uh, that's an eight-hour documentary of the making of this record. And uh, it started kind of leaking out into places that I didn't expect it to. And hearing some things about it that were pretty large, like some of the best content that we've had on music in a long time. And uh, I deliberately put it off uh, after listening to specifically Bill Simmons had Chuck Klosterman on his podcast and they talked about it for like two hours. And I was like, OK, I've got to watch this. Uh, I love the Beatles, uh, their story. Everything about them is just really interesting. And not to mention to me, the music obviously is just insanely good and changed so many different times and the story of all the individual characters involved uh and you know what we know about them what we think about we know the, about them and then with this it seems like we get to know a lot more because yeah. so much has been written about what happened at the end of the Beatles and uh it seems like or at least some of the things that uh, have been put out there about this is that some of those narratives might not be true so I'm very excited to dig into that very excited to dig into the music itself um an album that is probably not in my top five favorite Beatles albums, you know, like one that I mm -hmm. have liked, but is like not one I return to all that often. So all that being said, uh, I'm going to go with that, that Beatles record. Uh, I, I know that we've talked about Sgt. Pepper's in the past to some degree. Yeah. I can't remember where you really land on the Beatles overall. I dig the Beatles. Um, I picking a favorite album of theirs is really hard because there's always just like two or three tracks from each one that I adore. And I just, I want them all in one place. So for me, listening to the yeah. Beatles is as crappy as it sounds. It's like, I want that hits collection. Even if the songs that I like aren't the number one hits, you know, aren't the radio friendly ones. They're like a playlist band for me 
in that regard. And I know, you know, later on, they got more, um, I guess after they get into drugs and whatnot, they get a little bit more around the, the album concept as opposed to the, the earlier, just here's a bunch of our singles all together. Here you go. The Britpop. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the arc is just so fascinating for them. And uh, like you said, I definitely cycle through favorite albums of theirs. I almost go through at different times, kind of like different interest levels in the different mm -hmm. albums kind of drive me wanting to listen to them, even if the music isn't as good. So if I had to answer like favorite album, I'd have to parse it into like five different pieces. Um, right. But I like them all, like everything from like help all the way through. Let it be is great, basically um, in different ways. And it, it like arcs up and down. And yeah, like as they were getting into drugs and psychedelia kind of went mainstream yeah. partially because of them it, it, uh the music changed a lot. I'm stoked, dude. Um, so we're doing I, the, uh, the original version, not the naked one, right? Yeah, like, we'll just go with, we're doing I think the... Uh, orchestral, all the flourishes. No, we don't need that. We need um, we need the first track, two of us, through track 12, Get Back. So just the, uh, the 12 songs. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah, man. Um, it's going to be good. I uh, have always enjoyed talking about music with you. I feel like it's... One of the ways we've always connected a little deeper. So we'll, uh, it'll be fun, man. For sure. I'm going to go watch that Disney Plus series.